0: Mother Bailey's Quieting Syrup for Children Teething Makes Weak and Sick Children Strong and Healthy Gives Mothers Rest Day and Night Is a Quieting Medicine for Children Only 25 Cents Sold by Druggists Charles W. Snow, 28 East Genesee Street Agent I fill the air with the greatest of ease, a daring young man on the dying Hi there. This is Hugh Yeman, and you're listening to Historic Headlines, the podcast where we gain historical insight by examining newspaper articles from 50, 100, and 150 years ago. This week, there's too much confusion. I can't get no relief. Hey there, and welcome to episode 12. Well, we've made it. It's February 19th, 1868, the day after the Syracuse mayoral elections. Today's newspapers are chock-full of crowing from one side of the political aisle and wound-licking from the other. They're not as full of obscure historical references as previous editions, so I don't go down so many rabbit holes with this one. But still, I relish the elegant language and the way the newspapers reflected and shaped the culture. As usual, I'll interject when necessary, and you can see all my references in the show notes. All right, as is my habit, I'm going to start with the journal. But first, this word from our sponsor. Highly interesting news! Mothers take notice. Mother Bailey's quieting syrup for children teething. Large bottles, only 25 cents. Sold by druggists. For sale at wholesale by Marsh, Carpenter, and Hinman. 43 South Salinas Street. And we're back. Syracuse Daily Journal, Wednesday evening, February 19th, 1868. The results of the town elections in the county of Onondaga are, numerically, the same on supervisors as last year. The new board stands 21 Republicans to 6 Democrats, 3 wards of Syracuse, the first, second, and third, and 3 towns. Elbridge, Onondaga, and Salina elect Democrats. The other five wards and sixteen towns elect Republicans. The Victory and Its Lessons Syracuse, for once at least, has done her whole duty. Her record is untarnished. Her escutcheon is clean and bright. We rejoice with all Union men in the grand victory won yesterday, in the triumphant election of a representative union man to the chief magistracy of the city and of associates on the city ticket with like unimpeachable characters and antecedents, and in the rejection of an unworthy aspirant to the first place in the gift of our citizens, carrying dismay and discomfiture into the ranks of the party of which he is the representative par excellence. It is a proud record that we indict when we announce that Charles Andrews is elected mayor over John A. Green by a majority of 123. What? Motherfucker lost by only 123 votes? That was my reaction when I first read these newspapers. After all that, after being such a pain in the ass for Lincoln, after threatening military insurrection against federal troops, after all the vile rhetoric from him and in his name, that guy lost by only 123 votes. For those of you keeping notes, that's a margin of less than 2%. See my calculations in the show notes. Here I was reading his record thinking, no way are many people going to vote for the most notorious copperhead around, and then this. It goes to show you that people haven't changed that much. Reprehensible though their candidate may be, if they think he'll serve their interests and be good for business, they're going to vote for him. Alright, let's start that paragraph again. It is a proud record that we indict when we announce that Charles Andrews is elected mayor over John A. Green by a majority of 123, that Patrick Corbett is elected police justice by a majority of 273, that John Listman is re-elected overseer of the poor by 226 majority, and that George H. Gilbert is elected justice of the peace by 78 majority. The election of a Democratic overseer of the poor and justice of the peace in the first ward and of Democratic assessors was due to local disaffection, which is to be regretted and seems to us inexcusable. The results in the wards, briefly stated, are the election of five Republican supervisors to three Democrats, five Republican aldermen to three Democrats, three Republican school commissioners to one Democrat, and a like proportion of the minor officers. The control of the city government of Syracuse is fully vested in the Republican Party for the ensuing year. This is a proud triumph for the Union men of Syracuse. The contest was severely fought, All the elements of a vicious, corrupt, and unscrupulous political organization intensified by the great personal issue at stake were encountered, and the silent ballot, executing the will of free men and of liberty-loving and loyal citizens, won the victory, all honor to the true men of the central city. The lessons of this election are wholesome to both parties. The Democrats will learn, after a few such threshings as that of yesterday, that they cannot succeed with the people while they cling to the unpatriotic and faithless men who led them astray during the war by which the rebellion was suppressed. There are hundreds of men who voted for Green merely through the force of party discipline, who, we believe, are not at heart sorry that he is defeated, It is a pity that these men do not break loose from such party leadership, but there seems to be a fascination in the party name that holds them captive. The others, the mass of the party, who believe in and follow Green as a matter of duty, will not know the error of their ways until they find that it is only through new tactics, new leaders, and new principles they can hope to meet with popular success. The result yesterday is the first lesson to them of this character. The Republicans have learned that there is strength and victory in uniting upon representative candidates and that in the just and judicious distribution of the places of power and trust among the nationalities that compose the masses of the party, there is an element of popularity and success they have altogether too long overlooked. The composition of our city ticket was admirable in these respects; the support it received on all its components was so earnest that the concessions made were wise and fully appreciated. Our party has elected municipal officers that it may well be proud of, and we trust the other positions to be filled by appointment will be as judiciously and wisely disposed of. We need that every department of the city government be placed in able and competent hands, that the police and street departments especially shall be placed in charge of those who will do them justice and satisfy the reasonable expectations of the public. We are confident these trusts are reposed in worthy hands, and that the general welfare will be subserved to the full extent of the power therein vested. Although these considerations may not form a part of the customary demonstrations of gratification and enthusiasm over proud successes in local contests, we have thought them pertinent to this occasion. Hugh here. In this next piece, note how the journal accuses the Democrats of buying votes. I'm going to keep coming back to this. Here it goes. The meaning of the result. A private dispatch received at half past seven o'clock last evening states that General Green, the Democratic candidate for mayor of Syracuse, had been defeated by 100 majority. The radicals made a bitter personal fight against him, and it is reported that large sums of money were used to accomplish his defeat. The result may be charged to personal and not to political causes. Albany Argus, today. It was not a bitter personal fight upon John A. Green as a man and a citizen, but upon his odious and repulsive political opinions and conduct Large sums of money were used, not to accomplish Green's defeat, but to promote his election. Money was plenty in the hands of Green's trusted adherents, and was offered in sums of $25 for single votes. Whiskey flowed freely, and barrels of it were wasted in the desperate effort to secure Green's success. The Argus's, it is reported, is merely an excuse to Palliate the crushing effect throughout the state of the overwhelming defeat of an acknowledged leader and champion of the Democratic Party. We say plainly to the argus that the result of yesterday's election is not to be charged to personal causes, but wholly to political causes. It is democracy, represented by John A. Green that was routed, and there is no dodging the fact. Hugh here. This next piece is another case of this is not about the election, but this is absolutely about the election. Listen close, and I'll give you some background after I read it. Politics in America The New York correspondent of the London Daily News pays a merited tribute to the shrewdness which so often makes the American farmer a better politician than nine-tenths of the best-read European philosophers. He says that the newspapers and partisans fret and fume and shout and denounce, but the great mass work away in the field and factories, saying little, thinking much, hardy, earnest, self-reliant, very tolerant, very indulgent, very shrewd, filled with no delusions, carried away by no frenzies, believing firmly in the future glory of the republic, but holding to no other article of faith as essential in political salvation. The same writer draws the following vivid picture. Every now and then, as one watches the political storms here, One is reminded of one's feelings as one lied in bed on a stormy night, in an ocean steamer in a headwind. Each blow of the sea shakes the ship from stem to stern, and every now and then a tremendous one seems to paralyze her. The machinery seems to stop work. There is a dead pause, and you think for a moment the end has come. But the throbbing begins once more, and if you go up on deck and look down in the hold, you see the firemen and engineers at their posts, apparently unconscious of anything but their work, and as sure of getting into port as if there was not a ripple on the water. Hugh here. So it didn't take too much digging on Fulton history to figure out that that New York correspondent for the London Daily News they referred to was Edwin Lawrence Godkin, a famous newspaper man of the time. This fascinates me, not so much Godkin's piece itself, but the fact that the Standard editor chose to include this, again, wedged in between articles about the city election. I grew up in farming country in the middle of New York State, and now I live in Westchester and work in Manhattan. So I've seen the urban-rural divide from both sides, I've seen the mistrust, I've seen the way both sides craft narratives. So I'm fascinated with the way The Standard chose to craft their narrative by taking the impressions of an Irish-born correspondent for the London Daily News and weaving it into their covers of the local election. Clearly, they're presenting an image of steadfast rural American folk as of a piece with the steadfast voters of Syracuse. They're not just praising Republican voters, they're rewarding them with a sense of superiority over not only Democrats, but Europeans. And again, they're weaving this into the broader narrative of, hey, we did great, now let's keep the pressure on for the presidential election in November. All right, on with the next article. The Pending Contest These who imagine that the rebellion is utterly squelched are mistaken. It is organizing to get by strategy the control of the government. The old struggle is to be fought over in the presidential election. This is the way southern leaders are preparing for it. The Louisville Sentinel talks in this way. War is not a pleasant thing to contemplate, but war is preferable to slavery. One or the other, Democrats of the Constitution, you must choose. Democrats must prepare to fight. Democrats must fight. The people must rise in their power and hurl the whole devil-breeding crew back into perdition. Every man must do his duty. Every patriot must stand ready, every rusty gun must be cleaned. Pray to God, if you will, to change the hearts of the scoundrels in power, but don't fail to mold bullets. Such men will rule, or the Union Party must hold its own. Veteran soldiers, the men who carried the country through the war, have a preference. They must show it clearly, actively, vigorously. Disloyalty versus Patriotism The Syracuse city election is one which has a very general importance. If a man with the record of John A. Green can secure endorsement from the people, what is to be the penalty for disloyalty or the reward of patriotism in future? Albany Journal, 18th The penalty of disloyalty is in such defeats as John A. Green experienced at the hands of his fellow citizens yesterday. The just condemnation of the community in which his opinions and conduct are best known, and in which his party, in an issue less clearly defined, has been in the ascendant for three years past." Patriotism has its own sufficient reward, but to its sweets are added the confidence and respect of the loyal people. The city election, the central city redeemed, and loyalty and honor vindicated. Magnificent success on city and ward tickets, the results in full. The results of the charter election are best presented in the returns, which state the magnitude of the grand victory yesterday won by the indomitable Republicans of Syracuse. The lessons of the election are referred to in our editorial columns. All the wards did excellently well under the circumstances, but special words of praise are due the third and fifth wards. In the third, a splendid gain was made on mayor as compared with last year. And in the fifth, the result on the city and ward tickets throughout, with a largely increased vote, is of the most gratifying character. The results in the second, fourth, sixth, seventh, and eighth wards also have features worthy of commendation. Everywhere, the Republicans did their duty faithfully and thoroughly. The total vote in the city at this election is 6,875. Last spring, it was 6,046, a gain this year of 829. Hugh here, let's stop and break down those numbers. 6,875 voters. Looking at Boyd's Syracuse Directory from 1868, we find that that's only about 35% of the eligible voters, i.e. men. That means just slightly over one in three men voted in the city election. That's a level of voter disaffection that surprises me given the hyperbole streaming from all three newspapers in Syracuse in the days leading up to the election. Now, about that gain of 829 voters, let's analyze that. I made a couple of assumptions that you can see in the show notes, but long story short... If you assume that the 35% voter turnout is steady, and if you assume that the population increased steadily between 1865 and 1868, you would expect the number of voters to increase by about 400 between 1867 and 1868. The actual increase of 829 is only 429 more than that, so really not significant. This teaches us a lesson, and it's one I need to remember most of all. The whole reason I do this podcast is because I believe that a media-centric vision of history is important. Too often we get a sanitized and filtered version of history, so that the historical figures we know bear no resemblance to the people that their contemporaries knew. Consider John A. Green. Consider George Francis Train from Episode 3, Consider Samuel fucking Sunset Cox from episode 11. I have a perspective on these men that's closer to the perspective their contemporaries would have had than I could have possibly gotten from modern accounts. On the other hand, I have to remember never to fall into the trap of assuming that the people who read these articles had the same perspective as the people who wrote them. Had that been the case, the 1868 Syracuse mayoral election would have had roughly a 100% voter turnout. But in reality, we see that the increase in voter turnout between 67 and 68 was negligible. So all that hyperbole, all that invective, all those screeds, all that ink spilled, barely made a dent. And more importantly, it certainly didn't represent the attitudes of the voters. So anyway, long story short, my media-centric viewpoint is important, but I need to remember its limitations. Okay, on with the article. The successful candidates are as follows. Hugh here, I'm going to skip over this long list of names. And continuing on, the rejoicing of the union victors. The Unionists of Syracuse never enjoyed a triumph even of state or national consequence with such spirit and enthusiasm as were manifested in the celebration last evening of the proud victory of the day. As early as seven o'clock, it was definitely known that the city had been redeemed. Great crowds assembled at the newspaper offices, where the glad tidings were learned, and soon the swelling crowds adjourned thence to the city hall, where an impromptu meeting was presided over by the Honorable George N. Kennedy, the Honorable Charles Andrews, mayor-elect, answered the calls of the people in a short address. He was received with great enthusiasm. He spoke of the severely contested election and its marked significance, alluded in fitting terms to the social and personal character of his opponent, rejoiced that his associates on the Union ticket were successful, speaking particularly of the gratifying triumph of the eloquent Corbett, and closed, by predicting that this local victory is an augury of the great victory of the Union Party in the approaching presidential election. Mr. Andrews' remarks were substantially as follows. This is not the first occasion that I have been called upon to return thanks to you for conspicuous honors received at your hands, but at this time I feel, in common with you, that we rejoice in a victory not of men, but of vital and all-important principles. The earnest efforts you have put forth today could not have been called out by the ambitions of different men. You recognized that our opponents had sharply defined the issues before the country in the nomination of their standard-bearer. I have not a word to say against him as a neighbor, but admire many of his personal characteristics. But in his nomination for the chief magistracy of our city, we were challenged to again fight the issues of the past six years. The contest here was elevated into national significance. The question before us today was whether Syracuse was to retain the loyal position she occupied throughout the war, And your verdict of today reaffirms the action of our city, county, state, and nation in the Great Rebellion. The simple announcement of the result today is the most eloquent speech that can be made here tonight. You have sounded the keynote in the great contest upon which the nation is about to enter, and in our victory of today we may foresee the great victory which shall reaffirm, by a national verdict, the principles of republicanism by placing in the presidential chair the great captain of our victorious armies. You have all labored earnestly for this result, and I rejoice with you at our proud victory. I never shall forget the great honor you have this day done me, but I remember that you had another standard-bearer whose grand majority is at once an approval and a reward for his conspicuous advocacy of Republican principles and an assurance that you will never abandon them. You want to listen to his voice. Allow me again earnestly to thank you, and may God speed the right. These remarks were applauded at the close of every sentence, and Mayor Andrews retired amid roof-raising cheers. A committee was sent after the Honorable Patrick Corbett, police justice-elect, whose appearance in the hall was greeted with three times three rousing cheers. He made a brief pertinent and very sensible response, in which he alluded appropriately to the gratifying result of the day's hard work, returned his hearty thanks to the Republican Party, who had this day disproved the allegation of the Democrats that they wouldn't stand true to men born in other lands and also to the gallant body of young Irishmen who have broken away from the trammels that bind adopted citizens of their nationality to false democracy, and are avowed and earnest in their cooperation with the party of freedom and progress. He should ever feel that friendship is something more than a name, and should hold to his latest day in fond remembrance the personal friends who, today, had made his fortunes their own. He closed by reminding the assemblage that, great as is the joy over the day's victory, the victory of November next, when Ulysses S. Grant shall be elevated to the chief magistracy of the nation, would be transcendentally more joyful and glorious. Remarks were also made by Senator Kennedy, Assemblyman Alice, General H.A. Barnum, and Mr. Charles E. Fitch. Returns from the wards and several towns were read, and the good news was vociferously cheered. During the speaking, bonfires were lighted in the streets, and Hudson's Union gun began a salute of a hundred guns. These accessories heightened the popular enthusiasm. Exceeding joy was depicted on every face, and congratulations were extended sympathetically between Union men wherever they met. It was a right glorious season of hearty rejoicing and deep-seated gratulation. On the arrival of the City Brass Band, which, rumor asserts, was in readiness, having been engaged in advance by another party who were not altogether pleased at not needing its services, a procession of many hundreds was formed, and, with patriotic music and the national flag, a parade of the principal streets was made. Halting in front of the Republican printing offices, several speakers were called out and made congratulatory addresses later still the procession moved to senator kennedy's residence where they again heard him in eloquent terms proclaim the general good feeling and thankfulness over the grand achievements of the day the line of march was resumed and the residences of the honorable charles andrews honorable archibald c powell and honorable andrew d white on james street were visited Ex-Mayor Powell made a brief address responsive to the great good feeling that pervaded the Republican masses. At a seasonable hour, the festivities were concluded. It was a grand occasion, and that it was fully approved, the reader not present will doubtless have gathered from this brief sketch of the interesting proceedings. Historic headlines will return after this message. Mother Bailey's Quieting Syrup The Great Quieting Remedy for Children Teething. Allays all pain, cures wind colic, convulsions, griping, etc. Large bottles, 23 cents. Sold by druggists. For sale at wholesale by Marsh, Carpenter, and Hinman. 43 South Salina Street. And we're back. In this next piece, note how the Courier accuses the Republicans of buying votes. Here it is. Syracuse Daily Courier and Union. Syracuse, New York, Wednesday morning, February 19th, 1868. The Colored Troops Fought Nobly. We went home earlier than usual last evening and under the impression that the colored troops fought nobly. The fact is we didn't feel well every noise in the street after the poles closed annoyed us amazingly. We once liked to hear brass band music, but the band last evening played shockingly bad. The cheers from the processions were not exactly as they should have been. The little cannon on the square kept up a continual barking, and our old friends who are in the habit of clustering around our table, standing upon it, sitting upon it, and stretching themselves at full length under it, and other similar friendly greetings, were absent last evening, which caused an unusual gloom to hover over us while endeavoring to make out the terrible bad figures sent in from the several poles for us to decipher. As we have already mentioned, the colored troops fought nobly. While we were writing this, a stone came against our window from the outside. We was glad of it. We wanted a little change in the scene. We like to see the bushwhackers who received greenbacks for their voices so enthusiastic. In looking over the returns, we find that we have not suffered as great a loss in the conflict as we had first supposed from the outlandish and hideous yells in the streets. The Democrats elect three aldermen, three supervisors, both justice of the peace, overseer of the poor in the first ward, two school commissioners, and several minor officers. The following is the result. Hugh here. You can see all the names and numbers on the show notes if you want, so I'm skipping ahead. The salient feature here is that Andrews got 8,499 votes while Green got 8,376 votes. Summary. The Democrats elect three aldermen, three supervisors, two justices of the peace, one overseer of the poor, five constables, two school commissioners, and the assessors. The Radicals elect the mayor, police justice, five aldermen, five supervisors, and one overseer of the poor. Historic headlines will return after this message. Only 25 cents for large bottles. Mother Bailey's Quieting Syrup for Children, which greatly assists the child through the months of teething, allays all pain, reduces inflammation, corrects acidity of the stomach, and never fails to regulate the bowels. Sold by all druggists. For Sale at Wholesale by Marsh, Carpenter, and Hinman, 43 South Salina Street. We now return to our program. That's it for The Courier. Now, let's move on to the Standard, the second Republican newspaper. Note that the first article accuses political opponents of buying votes, just like the other two newspapers did. Syracuse Daily Standard, Wednesday morning, February 19, 1868. Syracuse redeemed. It is with heartfelt satisfaction that we announce the election of the Honorable Charles Andrews as mayor of the city of Syracuse. It is, if possible, with still greater satisfaction that we announce the defeat of John A. Green, Jr. In the hour of victory we are not disposed to exult over a fallen foe, but the contest through which we have passed was so peculiar in its nature that we must exult more than ordinarily. The knowledge that we have elected our candidate over such an opponent as he adds a peculiar significance to the result. The Democratic Party of this city, insolent over its victory of last fall, deliberately braved public sentiment in its nomination for mayor. They put up their leading man, but their leading man had the most obnoxious record of any man in our midst him they tried to cram down the throats of the good and loyal men of the central city. They have miserably failed in the unblushing attempt. They set the Republicans earnestly to work, and when the Republicans do earnestly work, this is a Republican city. By the most profuse expenditure of money, by the most excessive abuse of the liberty of speech, The democracy tried to stem the popular current against their candidate, but all was useless and worse than useless. There was not money enough in Democratic coffers or deceit enough in Democratic speech to procure votes sufficient to elect John A. Green, Jr. We are, at least, saved that disgrace. Syracuse is a loyal city and has elected a loyal mayor. For three years, a Democrat has been at the head of our municipal affairs. The secession is reversed. Syracuse is redeemed. This is glory enough for one day, independent of the political character of the man whom we yesterday defeated. Syracuse is redeemed. Let the good news flash along the wires and tell this waiting state that Syracuse is loyal to the core that hereafter the party of freedom may draw drafts upon her which will be honored. And now, fellow Republicans, here in the heart of the state, we have struck the key note of the great victory of next November. Let us not lay aside the armor which we have already covered with honor. Let us relax no effort and spare no pains to push forward the Republican column in that momentous contest in which, under the leadership of Ulysses S. Grant, we shall conquer all our foes and consummate the regenerate republic. Hugh here. Now I want to point out a few things about this next piece. As I've read the three Syracuse newspapers of 1868, I've gotten the impression that of the two Republican papers, the standard is less partisan and appealed to a more moderate audience. This one coming up supports that impression. It's more measured than the journal pieces. Instead of saying that the Democrats put forth their worst man, it says that both parties put forth their strongest candidate. It does deliver one last, relatively gentle, jab at Green's military command. Watch for that. But pay particular attention to the bit near the end, where it denounces the buying of votes. It doesn't point fingers at either side, and the reader is left with the general impression that both sides did it. This, more than anything else I've read, makes me trust the standard more, and gives me insight into the relative political stances of the three papers for the standard, the election. Mr. Editor, this contest was well-planned to test the strength of the two parties in Syracuse. Each put forward its best man, both gentlemen of the highest personal probity and unexceptionable private character, and both widely known in the state and nation. The one, a representative Republican, true to the principles of his party, the other, a representative Democrat, true to the principles of his party. Their political records are on file and known to all. The Democrats did well to put forward their best man, to test the strength of their party here, aided, as they knew it would be, by his great reputation and abundant means, They have made their strongest fight with their chosen general at their head, most valiant, perhaps, on fields where no blood is to be shed. The Republicans were equally prudent in the selection of their leader, and all agree that this issue, framed as it was, meant more than, simply, who should be mayor. All saw and felt that deeper meaning which was intended— and the result is highly satisfactory to every loyal, liberty-loving heart. Rightly understood, it would be a little discouraging, one would think, to men of opposite sentiments. The citizens of Syracuse are now ready for the question, shall loyal men rule the nation, and traitors really take back seats? This question will be put to vote next fall and will be decided, so far as Syracuse is concerned, in the affirmative. One thing noticeable in the election of yesterday, however, every right-minded citizen of both parties must deplore, and that was the use of money to influence votes. We hope the day is not far distant when it shall be made a felony for any person to give or receive any money or valuable thing for the purchase or sale of a vote. If this is to continue, the offices of our government will soon be put up at auction and sold to the highest bidder. History furnishes some valuable lessons for the American people in this regard, which we shall do well to learn in season. Eternal Vigilance is the Price of Liberty. T.K. Victory! Syracuse redeemed! Rejoicing! The enthusiasm which resulted in so great a victory for Republicanism yesterday did not cease with the closing of the polls. As soon as the result became generally known, the Republicans in large numbers assembled at City Hall and organized with Honorable George N. Kennedy as chairman. The thunders of Captain Hudson's gun and the resonant music of the band mingled with the loud huzzas of the victorious multitude assembled. Amid the general enthusiasm, loud calls were made for our gallant standard-bearer. Honorable Charles Andrews, Mayor-Elect, Mr. Andrews appeared and was greeted with long, continued, and deafening applause, and spoke substantially as follows. Hugh here, and it goes on to give the same speech that I read previously. But this one also appears to have the actual words of Patrick Corbett's speech, where the other one just had a paraphrase. That's important to me because I've become fascinated with Patrick Corbett. I'm going to do an episode on him down the line, but for now, just remember that name. All right, continuing with the article. Loud calls were made for the Honorable Patrick Corbett, our new police justice, him of the big majority. He spoke as follows. Syracuse has opened the ball today. Never in the history of our proud party did a nobler victory crown our efforts. The loyal people put forward their noble representative, and the result rejoices the hearts of us all. The man who, for five years of desperate war, waged to destroy our noble government— had no word of encouragement for loyalty, no word of cheer for loyal victories of our devoted armies, is himself today covered with humiliating defeat. For myself, I rejoice in that your great kindness to me today is a victory for all of my nationality who, like myself, cut loose from the Democratic Party and voted and labored in accordance with our convictions, I shall ever feel that friendship is something more than a name, and shall hold to my latest day in fondest remembrance the personal friends who have today made my fortunes their own. Syracuse has given the first gun for victory in the great national contest upon which we are about to enter, and tomorrow she shall be mentioned with pride by the loyal, freedom-loving men throughout the land. Let us all rejoice and gird ourselves for the great contest upon which we are about to enter." Speeches were also made by Misters H.A. Barnum, G.N. Kennedy, C.E. Fitch, and A.G.S. Alice. The greatest enthusiasm prevailed, and the crowd, which filled the hall to its utmost capacity, proceeded, headed by the band, to the residence of Mr. Fitch, serenaded that gentleman, also the residence of John J. Kraus, and from there to the offices of the Standard and Journal. At the standard office, Mr. Fitch and Barnum were called out and addressed the crowd. From the standard office, the crowd proceeded to the residence of Senator Kennedy, who briefly addressed them. Then they proceeded to the residence of Honorable Charles Andrews. Mr. Andrews was absent, and the crowd, numbering thousands, proceeded from thence to the residence of ex-Mayor Powell, who made a short and telling address. The Honorable A.D. White was next complimented with a serenade, but that gentleman left the city on the 8 p.m. train. Rejoicings were kept up to a late hour, and every Republican retired and slept as sweetly as the noblest victory of the bloodiest field. Hugh here. As you listen to this last bit, definitely read along in the show notes, because you have to see this to get the full effect. It's nothing but a column of exclamations in boldface and different type settings. You especially have to see this illustration of what I at first took to be a royal bugler, but as I looked at it more closely just now, I realized that it's actually supposed to be a Civil War bugler. Check it out. Our City Election Glorious Republican victory. Loyalty triumphant. Traitors defeated. Treason rebuked. Wounded soldiers rewarded. Syracuse redeemed. Nothing green can flourish here. The grocery firm swamped in bad whiskey. Hugh here. Aha, did you catch that little dig about John A. Green's grocery firm? If not, check out previous episodes. Alright, continuing on. First gun of the campaign. Its echoes sound the note of a presidential victory. Our flag floats triumphant. No traitor's hand shall haul it down. Republicans rejoicing. Disloyal Democrats Crawling to Their Holes A Republican Mayor A Republican Police Justice Republican Justice of the Peace Republican Overseer of the Poor Five Republican Aldermen Five Republican Supervisors A Republican Common Council Syracuse, a Union City The charter election in Syracuse took place yesterday, and, notwithstanding the strenuous exertions of the democracy, under the management of unscrupulous leaders and the largest expenditure of money and other means of bribery, the Union Republicans have carried the city triumphantly, and we can rejoice over a Republican mayor and common council and a majority of the board of supervisors." This is a glorious triumph for union principles and may be regarded as the harbinger of future success for the union party. The contest was waged on party grounds, and the success is complete and overwhelming. Syracuse elects a union mayor for the first time in several years and changes the political character of the council. The city is redeemed from democratic misrule and takes rank among the union cities of the state and the nation. The sympathizers with treason are rebuked and defeated at home, and loyal men are elected to govern our union city. All loyal men will rejoice over this result and take courage to press forward to future victories in the city, state, and nation. The following tables show the full vote on each of the candidates and the majorities of the principal officers. Hugh here. And then it gives a table of the wards along with the votes for Andrews and Green in each one. And that's it for the 1868 Syracuse mayoral elections. Now, a couple of things before I wrap up this episode. First of all, those ads I read for Mother Bailey's quieting syrup for children? Mother Bailey's quieting syrup? like a lot of patent medicines at that time, was an opium derivative. Yep, they were giving morphine to their babies. Go to the show notes to find information and a link to the Victorian Web article about this, or just Google Mother Bailey's quieting syrup. You'll get an eyeful. Well, folks, as always, thanks for listening. I hope you found it illuminating and fun and frustrating and shocking and gratifying as I did. If you didn't, there's still hope. First of all, remember, it's early days and I'm still learning my way around a microphone. And second, I've been arranging interviews because I know that listening to me yak into a microphone is nowhere near as engaging as listening to a dialogue. So I'm excited to announce that the next episode will have my very first interview. Until then, seek context. This is Hugh Yeeman, and you've been listening to the Historic Headlines Podcast. Thanks, as always, to Tom Truniski for all his fabulous work on FultonHistory.com. Without his free repository of old newspapers, this podcast wouldn't exist. Oh, he'd fly through the air with the greatest of ease, a daring young man on the dying trapeze. His movements were graceful, the girls he could please, And my love he stolen away.